don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 27. And today we are talking about a jewel of Western civilization. 1996's Biodome, directed by some dude. Oscar sweeping uh biodome jason bloom yes i think that's it yeah you know i swept the oscars won all the baftas all, all that kind of stuff um, got a standing ovation at sundance yeah when the the palm d'or and the gold line uh, and all that i i googled uh uh or i guess i looked it up on wikipedia uh just to see like all the like credits and stuff and it was weird. It said the director's uh, uh, Jason Bloom was born in 1982, and I was like, and this was before I watched the movie. And I was like, that would make him what 14 in 1996. And I was like, that's crazy, and that's there's no way that's true. And then I watched the movie. And I was like, oh no, that makes sense. <laughs> that lines up. Yeah. Um, this is this is I can see where this was made by a 14 year old boy. Yeah. Yeah, it was basically made by a bunch of grown 14-year-old boys. Uh, my favorite part of the Wikipedia page is just a one sentence uh, one sentence in the introduction that says, Biodome received negative reviews. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, thank, thank you for the clarification. Yeah, it won all kinds of like Razzies and stuff. I think, or I think Polly Shore lost to Tom Arnold for uh, The Stupids or something like that. Oh, I kind of remember that movie. Yeah, that's weird. But this is one of those movies for sure that I remember from when I was a kid and like renting it on a weekend or it would like come on TV, be on like TBS or something. Yeah. So, I mean, I was 10 when this movie came out and I remember people talking about it and it was like sort of the thing that like the kids whose parents would let them watch inappropriate shit they saw and talked about. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and Polly Shore was weirdly to remember this but uh it was huge in the in the early mid 90s i forgot how many movies he made uh and i've seen them all i think (laughs) i i rented this on amazon yes and i was like oh jury duty i forgot about that oh son-in-law i forgot about that son-in-law i still remember son-in-law fondly i couldn't tell you any of the jokes or even explain the plot to you but i remember watching it and liking it as a as a Uh, kid Encino Man. Yeah, yeah you know? of course. Uh, All these, uh, like I saw those movies. Like what was I doing with my childhood? What were my parents doing? Looking back now like, oh, I've, oh, I've wasted my life. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, so this movie stars Polly Shore, the weasel himself, which mm-hmm. is funny because his, his character's name is Bud Squirrel Macintosh. So <laughs> I, I guess it was, it was like the parallel, his real life. And then uh, Stephen Baldwin in what is the worst acting I think I've ever seen, or maybe it's just the worst character, the worst dialogue for a character I've ever seen as as Doyle Stubbs Johnson, so Squirrel and Stubbs, yeah, um, like Rizzoli and Isles. So there, it's just like I don't know it, William Atherton as Doctor Faulkner who. I recognize, but couldn't place, and so I, and then I had to look him up and realize that I remembered him from uh, Ghostbusters. Well, yeah, from Do- Die Hard, but I actually remembered him first from Ghostbusters, since I've seen that oh, movie yeah. a billion times. 
Um, Die Hard and uh, he's uh, Durs's dad in Workaholics. Oh, he's Thor, right? Yeah, <laughs> Thor's hammer. Thor's hammer. Um, he calls his dick. Uh, but then it's also got like the cast is interesting because there's the, the people we've mentioned, and then there's Kylie Minogue. Who's that? Kylie Minogue, like Australian singer, super famous. At least in Australia, know. she had the song "Can't Get You Out of My Head." Like I don't know well, who does she play. I don't even know who that she is. plays. One of the scientists. She's the 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 sexy scientist that like almost blows the carrot. Ah. She's like slapping the carrot on her face. It's, it's God. Um, <laughs> and then it's got like Bill Clinton's brother, the half brother of Bill Clinton, Roger Clinton as like some random person. Um, Jack Black, like Tenacious D shows up for a second. Yeah. Yeah. That's weird. Um, there's something, a some, oh, Rose McGowan. Yeah. In a really yeah. kind of bit part. Joey Lauren Adams. Yeah. Joey Lauren Adams with her boobs just all out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Their girlfriends are very like 90s mall skank kind of. I don't know. It's it, it was sort of a weird contrast to see these two just like shit hill characters that are that are played as just useless people. And they have these like attractive doting girlfriends that are like that want to hang out with them. <laughs> it, it was right. a very well, kind of like 90s move to do that. Well, it's, it's a rhetorical move, I think, and that this maybe will get us into the sort of environmental stuff. Uh, so the movie is addressing the sort of, you know, MTV kind of Beavis and Butthead crowd uh, represented by Bud and whatever the other fucking guy's name is. Uh, and Doyle, Bud and Doyle. Doyle. Uh, so it, it's, um, I think that the hot girls are part of the larger rhetorical point that if you care about, uh, environmental issues, you will get to meet hot girls. Uh, <laughs> that seems, that seems to be a major point, um, uh, in this movie. Yeah, it 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 does because it, it's only when Bud and Doyle. This is weird to just be analyzing this movie, uh, but when Bud and Doyle finally do come around and start like, and they get on the right track and start, you know, working to save the biodome, that's when the female scientists are like, "Ooh, turns out you're actually okay after all," and we're gonna come right. to your room and try to bone both of you at the same time. In the same room, yeah. In the same room, you'll be fighting them off. You'll, yeah. you'll have to make moral choices with your sexuality <laughs> because the pussy be, will just be raining from the sky. You'll be given an ultimatum um, <laughs> yes. and you will have to decide on the spot. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, well, it's sort of like, it's sort of like this podcast and, and us, you know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just beating the path to my door. Um, so, uh, anyway, yeah, the, we, we, you were talking about how it seems like Jason Bloom is a 14 year old boy for real. Um, <laughs> yeah. and that's because the dialogue and specifically Bud and Doyle, their interactions are literally, you know, written seems like by and for that 
demographic. Um, there's a lot of it's, like it seems weird, like Paul Short jokes. just like I don't know, just riffing or something. Yeah, it does seem like they're just sort of like saying the the most sort of immature thing that comes into their head. Well, um, something I've noticed is that most of the comedy in this movie are these weird little uh, performances, like like performance within a performance where Bud and Doyle react to something by like performing a uh, an apparently ongoing and pre-rehearsed like routine you know what i'm saying yeah yeah where they like sing a little song or like dance or like a, a dance that's like clearly something they've done before but it's like very strange that that happens like 12 times or something it's almost like if you read the script it would have like a few or like the screenplay it would have like a few events and then at the bottom it just says bud and doyle riff for a while yeah yeah um and like um, steve baldwin's i gonna say steven baldwin's doing like a lot of really bad physical comedy that mostly includes just banging his head into things yeah and i was just looking it up so steven baldwin was in the usual suspects the year before this movie came out <laughs> what happened like what the fuck um it that i think that adds some some proof to my theory that i I think i said on the podcast at some point that actors are the result of directors good actors are made by directors and editors um and bad actors are made by bad directors and bad editors and this movie had just bad Both. everything. Yes. Um, um, it. Yeah. It's just their interact. I don't know. It, it's weird because their their relationship is kind of weirdly endearing. Um. You know, except for you know Stephen Baldwin chewing on Polly Shore's foot for him. Yeah, that's little. unwatchable. <laughs> but but their their relationship is actually kind of sweet at times. They're very kind of like. They're, I don't know. They're 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 very like touchy feely kind of. Yeah, they're, friends. yeah. They're like they like explicitly mentioned that they're uh, that they they're bisexual apparently. <laughs> like uh, that that cause, was cause su- he says he hears the word biodome. He's like, you think that meaning goes both ways? It's like we do. <laughs> we like, do <laughs> lick their tongues at each other. That is such a very like I saw that and I was like, oh yeah, we're in the nineties. This is yeah. now we're cooking on cooking with gas. Um, I never, I never thought I'd see a movie that would so make me appreciate uh, all the filmmaking and acting in "Dude, Where's My Car?" <laughs> yeah, everything about that film is just objectively better than this one, <laughs> yes. as far as like you know, shithead stoner comedies go. Right, um, right. But you know, we're talking about all the stuff that is in this film that is just firmly encapsulates it in the nineties. Like it's well, a time I, I capsule know, of that he, era. I don't know. There was a pretty funny, uh, and, and mature and well handled, uh, borderline rape scene. <laughs> yeah. Like what uh, the the straight up sexual assault on <laughs> yeah. women who are sleeping. <laughs> just, like, 
walk in and and get in the bed and feel up these women and it's and like that's the joke yeah like Stephen baldwin literally grabs the whoever it was either Kylie Minogue or the other one like grabs her boob and then you see Polly Shore and he is like it, I think like putting the the woman's hand like on his dick or something or he's pulling his pants down or something it's just like uh un unthinkable now for that to be like if if you were going to show that in a movie it would not be in this type of movie the source of humor would be very, very different. It would be, um, like it, it would end with them, like getting their dicks punched off or something like that, you know, like yeah. it, but the joke in this movie is like, ha ha ha. I got to feel her boobs. Sort yeah, of thing. It's a, ha ha. They almost raped those women. Ha ha ha. Um, yeah. it was, yeah, that was very, and, it, and it's a very short thing, but like you're saying, it, it's a hundred percent played, for comedy like played for laughs right um, right and it's just like yeah was, aside from just sort of the 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 nature of the jokes and uh, all that sort of stuff and sort of even like the cadence of their voice is a very sort of 90s kind of stoner thing that those scenes were just like oh man i'm, I'm kind of glad we left a lot of this shit back there yeah uh, people complain about political correctness and all that shit, and me too. But like, we're obviously in a much better place now. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you tell me we can't make. I, I just I can't imagine the kind of person that would be like pissed off that we couldn't make Biodome today. <laughs> <laughs> You're telling me in 2019 we couldn't remake this masterpiece. I was reading they tried to, in 2013, there was like talks of a sequel. Yeah. And uh, I'm really hoping that was just like one of them talking out of their ass. Yeah. I, said, um, I also saw that on Metacritic, it was given a score of one out of 100. Yeah. 4% on Rotten Tomatoes. Right. I think, I think I read the same thing and it's like, there's only like a handful of movies that are rated that low. Yeah. One of them a documentary by Dinesh D'Souza. Oh, is that the one like like calls Obama the Antichrist? Probably. I don't know. I haven't seen any of his <laughs> stuff, but I would assume so. Yeah, um, um, well, almost nothing happens in Biodome for the first like like once they have you know they get trapped in the Biodome. I don't know if you noticed. There's like thirty minutes of just nothing. Where like it, that that thirty minutes is where the screenplay was just like, and then hijinks are improvised. <laughs> hijinks ensued. Right. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's just kind of them driving around drinking bladder busters, which is a pretty good <laughs> little detail. Just those like giant like big gulp, but three big gulps together, something like that, yeah. like ninety ounces. Um, and you know, there, there are some, before the biodome, there are a couple meaningful scenes. If those can be said to exist in this film, um, like they go to, I forget the name of the lake, but they go to the, the quote unquote lake and it's all like dried up and full of garbage and all that sort of stuff. And they reminisce like, Hey, there used to be water and fish here. Yeah. I, I don't think that the opinions of whoever wrote this movie are like, 
about about environmentalism are terrible because one of I, I would say maybe the major point of the movie is is what happens you know after the big party in the biodome mm-hmm which I don't think it's ridiculous to suggest is a kind of metaphor for the human domination and destruction of the planet. They even say like, oh, it's just like the biodome's just like out there now. Um, yeah. And so, okay, we've got this microcosm of the world and you see the scientist, uh, William Atherton, whatever his name is. Uh, Dr. Faulkner. Faulkner, yeah. Um he can't handle the uh, the state of the biodome after perfection has been compromised. And then what Bud and Doyle do is to make a case that all of the elements that have been uh, used to destroy the biodome, so you see like the beer cases and cigarettes and things like that, can actually be reappropriated to uh you know re-achieve homeostasis and that i mean the movie is a shit show but that point is not terrible because i do think the idea that the movie is rejecting is that there is no paradise nature is not a paradise it it probably never was and uh, i mean it probably it definitely never was but it's even it's way worse now, but we cannot undo what's been done, but we can reappropriate this shit world we have built to make it a little less shitty uh, and and inhabitable. And that's really what's happening in that, you know, sort of third act sequence. Um, and, and I think that's a decent point. We will there will never be any such thing as a pristine, you know, landscape or nature anymore. If they're ever, I mean, that's, it's, it's hard to even talk about that. Like, yes, maybe there was a time, there was a time when there wasn't pollution like there is today, but that would have been a time before human culture. So there would have been no one here to say it's pristine, you know? Uh, yeah. That's first human comes out and it's like, Oh, we're fucked. We already we've ruined it, <laughs> broke the sill. Um, th- this scene, the party scene, in the aftermath, sort of uh, reminded me of a movie we've talked about before. I don't know if you could Mother. guess. Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I I thought of the same thing. The the similar sort of bacchanal party scene uh, in in Mother, and so like you talk about it as like a you know spoiling of the earth, and in Mother, it's much more you know, metaphorical, I guess, but, uh, in biodome, it's literally, they're coming in and wrecking this environment. Um, and this whole idea of reappropriation of, of things that are, that humans sort of thrust upon the environment, these cans and and cigarette butts and all that sort of shit. Uh, it does, it kind of remind me of, I'm sure recycling has been around for decades, but I remember in the nineties specifically it being kind of emphasized, a big help. Remember that on uh, Nickelodeon? The yeah. Big yeah. Yeah. I remember. Sh- and I was just thinking of stuff like that. And like in school, the teacher, the science teacher would have you like 
we had everyone like bring a milk carton or whatever and like cut it in half and put a plan in it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it kind of struck me as, as very similar in tone to a lot of that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking specifically about the, so they're trying to rebuild the air filter and, uh, Doyle, Stephen, uh, almost said Steve, well, almost said Stephen Hawking. So that's good. <laughs> but Stephen Baldwin's, uh, character <laughs> is collecting all these like cigarette, butt like cigarette filters and putting them in the thing to try to fix it. And Polly Shore, uh, his character, or I, I think I messed up their names. It doesn't matter. Polly Shore's character shows up and it's like, Oh, uh, what's her face said we could use wet blankets. Uh, so you don't have to do that now. And he's like, Oh man. And then Polly Shore goes, well, it's okay. At least you picked them up. And it was just like a weird scene to include because it's not funny really. Um, and it, it, I don't know. It's just like a weird thing where he's like, well, at least you did a good, a good thing. And they're like, okay. And then they just move on to the next part of it. Yeah. There's, you say it's not funny. That's, that's to be assumed. There's, I, I think there's one thing that I laughed at in this whole movie. Was it the blue it was, velvet reference? Uh, uh no, it was, oh, that, that it was, was not, uh, that, that, that was okay though. But, um, no, the only thing I thought that was funny was that they they were playing golf, and the goat was a caddy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. They had like the golf bag uh, strapped to the goat, and the goat was following them around, and I I got tickled. <laughs> I, I laughed like legitimately at the laughing gas scene <laughs> where they're doing. He's like Dennis Hopper, blue bullet. Ooh, I'm slutty. Ooh, I'm slutty. <laughs> so, which is like indicative of the kind of comedy where it's either a, it's like a real fast reference to something else or it's like a dick joke. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you, did you notice that they kept uh, twice real back to back? They made Nazi references. I did. I don't think I caught that. Uh, well, one of them was, Oh wait, wait, the scientists, Right, the scientist does like a Hitler salute. No, it's it's Stephen Baldwin. Like the, he tries to go into the biodome to piss because they think it's a mall, and the the guard stops him, and he like does a salute, and he's like making fun of the cop. Uh, but then earlier than that, um, when their girlfriends are like, "We're gonna hang out with these swimmers," and Polly Shore calls him like swim Nazis or something like that, mm-hmm. it's just like a really weird kind of reference to make it's again again it's something that you're not going to see today um yeah which i I think bring it back make fun of nazis one of of the scientists when they're like being introduced at the opening ceremony of the biodome is like supposed to step up and wave and he does this weird sort of like heil hitler looking thing the, the one that looks like dr green from er um you talking about the real skinny bald guy? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's him. Did you not watch ER? I I I did watch ER, but I don't know the names. Yeah, I don't either. Um, McDreamy, right? <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, I remember that actually because as I was watching it, he does it. I was like, "What the fuck is that?" Um, <laughs> it's kind of weird. Uh, yeah, we, I mean, there's, uh, I didn't do much research, uh, on the internet, but 
there might be some uh, crazy conspiracy theories about Biodome. It's a movie made by Nazis, but no one knows why. Yeah. Uh, one thing we were talking about earlier that I think is worth talking about <clears throat> with the party scene is an issue we've talked a lot about on this podcast is audience. And I think it's actually a pretty good rhetorical move to have uh, the metaphor for destruction be something that the audience of this film will immediately recognize. So the, the, the metaphor is a party, you know, mm-hmm. as it's barely a metaphor. It's like literally showing destruction. But uh, if the audience of this movie is sort of slacker, stoner, you know, young Americans, and to have the negative association of like your self-indulgent pleasure-seeking is, you know, in some way uh, sort of spiritually connected to destruction of the earth. I think that's a decent, a decent message. Uh, not to say that partying is terrible, um, but no, we love to party. We fully endorse partying yeah. as part of our podcast platform. Oh yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's like you say, it's a very thinly veiled, if veiled at all metaphor and it's interesting that if you look there there are kind of two settings for this movie i mean there, there are a lot of different places they go but the two main settings i think are the biodome mainly and then the college campus mm-hmm. where their their girlfriends go to arizona technical university which I, I guess is like a fictionalized university and so you see their interactions on campus with environmental movements happening on their campus and you know they meet the guys that are like the the like let's save the world let's sit in a circle and rub each other's backs kind of like 90s neo hippies right um in contrast to bud and doyle who were just like burnout stone I, I still have trouble figuring out what their appeal is as like partners but <laughs> uh, they're obviously the op- meant to be sort of the opposite of you know college educated concern with the environment kind of person and yeah. so it's interesting to show because i think if you talk about like in in our real world if we step out of the movie for a second and you're talking about any sort of environmental movement on a large scale you need the buds and the doyles right you need everyone you need everyone that you can bring in and like you're saying this film does do the uh, kind of interesting rhetorical move of showing how would someone like a butter Doyle come into the fold, so to speak. Uh, And it would be through, I guess, some sort of realization that what they're doing is harmful, I guess, or, or realizing that they can assist such a movement in a way that aligns with their knowledge about beer cans or whatever the fuck it is. Yeah, I, I think we've talked about uh, before how you know a movie can be as sort of sophisticated and and uh, you know as correct as it as it can, uh, but if you're not reaching you know a certain audience, then it doesn't really matter. And that's sort of what we said about Mother is that it's 
ultimately kind of preaching to the choir. Um, but I think you're right to say that this movie kind of kind of does it does it right in terms of it is trying to reach. It's an environmental film trying to reach a demographic that is not usually um, reached out to. Um, it's sort of uh, uh, it weirdly kind of democratic in that way. Um, but but a phrase that that you made me think of is uh something we talked about on the first episode i believe uh gauche's phrase moments of recognition yeah and just to sort of apply that to this movie what i think what we said in the first episode is that it doesn't take a complete overhaul of your life okay you you see a movie or you you know, see a documentary or you read a book and it changes your perspective on the environment. Um, for real change to happen, and this is sort of one of Gosha's main points, the sort of be the change you wish to see in the world model of environmentalism is out the window. It's gone. It's not an option anymore because even if a million people saw a movie or read a book that changed their lives, it would make no difference. Um, <clears throat> and so what, what can affect change though is radical political action. Um, when the people who are in charge of making policies that can lead to corporate regulation, that is how, actual sort of global change will come about um and so and so just getting a message out that may swing an election is in some you know you could argue that that is more meaningful than like you know uh not polluting or or recycling or growing your own garden or something like that not that those things are bad things but they should not be exaggerated in their effectiveness. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, the, the whole thing of your individual choices are nice and they can make you feel better, but ultimately they don't stack up unless it's everyone doing it. That, that same sort of uh, <clears throat> argument that gets made, right, of don't use a plastic straw. Well, actually, it doesn't fucking matter because... <laughs> More people than not are going to use one. Um, right. I think we talked about Elizabeth Warren's sort of light bulb uh, rant. Yeah. The, uh, this is what the week. oil companies want us to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which is, I, I would imagine, would be true, right? They don't want you thinking about how Deepwater Horizon almost destroyed an entire branch of the world's oceans, right? They want you to worry about whether or not you're using the right kind of straw and you to, right. to be angry and, at and the person next to you for using it. And they want you, they would rather have the sort of discourse be soft environmentalism than even, you know, something not even connected to environmentalism uh, because that gives the illusion of a solution. 
Yeah, and I, I like that you use the phrase. I, I don't know if you just came up with that organically or if that's a thing that you've heard before, but soft in environmentalism. It, I uh, I don't think I've read that, but... Uh, uh, well, I mean, it sounds interesting because that would mean it would contrast against a hard environmentalism, right? So if you think about things we've watched, you have like Jesse Eisenberg's character in Night Moves. That's a kind of hard environmentalism, not because mm-hmm. he was you know, blowing up a dam, but, but just the way he was living before that it's kind of living on a commune is kind of a hard environmentalist right. action right. where a soft environmentalist one is, uh, I bought this pair of shoes because they're made out of recycled plastic. Yeah. So I think maybe another word for soft environmentalism should just be sustainability. And, and we've talked about the kind of shitty, uh, project of, There's really two different things people mean when they say sustainability. Um, What uh, I I would argue what actual thoughtful environmentalists mean is a a set of principles that will allow us to sustain life on Earth. Um, What that phrase gets appropriated to mean is how how can we um, appear to conform to the demands of environmentalism without changing any of the principles of the culture uh, especially the economy um, how do we sustain the economy without killing ourselves? That's, uh, to me, that's that's sort of the essence of of what I mean when I say soft environmentalism. Yeah, and and I've heard people talk about what a well, in their opinion, what a catastrophe it would be if capital could ever fully monetize going green, quote unquote. Um, because what that would mean is just a, a bunch of, uh, Southeast Asian sweatshops where children are making solar panels for three pennies a a month, like that, that kind of thing. Um, and the kind of human toll that it would have, even though it's seen as being sort of a universal good. So, and that gets into bigger questions of how do how would a sustainable, not sustainable, how would like a hard environmental movement overlap with government and economic systems and international relations and all, all those sort of like super complicated questions. Um, but I think at, at the heart of it that you can very clearly make the divide between the sort of sustainability and, you know, how do we sort of stay the course and not change too much because I'd really like to keep driving my F two fifty or whatever. Uh, right and a sort of harder, more kind of militant stance. Well, and it's what I said about you know gauche and be the change you you wish to see in the world. I, I I'm not as down on that as maybe I sounded, uh, but the point is, like you said, nothing's going to change until uh, with that model unless everyone were to do it. And the point I was making about political action um, or, or, you know, 
voting for the person who can influence regulation is that the regulations have to be so radical that and the realigning of the economy has to be so radical uh, that the harmful choices that everyone is making are not even part of the equation anymore. It's not like, uh, like, like it should not be an option for you to like have a meal delivered to your house that, uh, on a truck that was in, you know, that was 600 miles away the day before. I'm thinking about like things like HelloFresh, yeah, and and that sort of thing. Like, like that's preposterous, uh, and that's not even seen as like a particularly negative thing. But all I'm saying is, people. I don't think a lot of people understand how uh, sort of truly radical the world is right now. Uh, how weird it is to get food from other parts of the planet regularly. Yeah. Yeah. Like being Uh, able to buy things year round. Right. And and so that's what I mean when I say it's not that, uh, Oh, the, the changes will happen politically. And so we can just continue living our lives as they are. And, and, you know, corporations will get regulated and everything will be okay. It's not that at all. It's that, it's that we have to put in power people who have the balls to uh, do the things that have to be done, you know, according to the information we have, which is radical. The information is radical. Um, and so the action has to fit that. Um, and so I'm not saying people won't have to make changes. You absolutely will. But the changes that individuals will have to make will, will necessarily have to be, uh, made in a completely changed, uh, economy, uh, a reorganized economy because the way we do things now are not sustainable. Yeah. And it makes me think of, uh, Neil Postman. And we, I think we've talked about this before. Um, but the, his whole bit about the, uh, the car cruise control yeah cruise control yeah. and it, well what problem is that solving well the problem of having to put your foot on the gas well i never thought of that as being a problem um yes. and like what problem is hello fresh or blue apron or whichever ones um what what problem is that fixing and it, it's really not it's just sort of like aggregating solutions that are already available to you uh, so if you don't want to go in a store and shop, order your shit online and go and pick it up. Every store does that now. You don't know well, how to cook, it, look up a recipe. <laughs> right. Um, and and you, you see this with a lot of like business ideas is how uh, everything, not everything, but a lot of things, HelloFresh I'm, I'm thinking of, it's about accepting the economy as it is and fitting your little idea into it and and thereby you are ratifying the world as it is uh, you're saying this the world uh, you know let's say the business culture is right and good and therefore I will contribute more to it but you're really just 
kind of carving out your little space within it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 it reminds me of like, I'm sure we've talked about this before because this is a thing with me, like corporate yoga or like corporate Buddhism where yeah. it's like, and you see this now, we've, we've definitely encountered this in uh, grad school where instead of, you know, there's all these articles and stuff about how stressful corporate life is or how stressful uh, academic life is. And instead of the academy or corporations taking a step back and saying, hey, why are we asking everyone to live lives that are unbearably stressful? They say, do some fucking yoga. The problem is you. Break. The problem is with your your brain and your willingness right. to accept what we're telling you is a the way you have to live now. Right. Inner solutions to outer problems. It's I mean, and you <laughs> that, see this everywhere. That could literally be the slogan of like a meditation app. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's it's offensive. Uh in a lot of ways, people telling you you're stressed because you don't have like the sort of inner tools to deal with this. Um, but it's, uh, think about all the different ways that that happens too. It's like, you're not tough enough or you're not right with God or your chakras aren't aligned or you never resolved your daddy. Like there's so many of those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so with businesses, it's the same way. It's like, oh, you don't have any time to cook because you're, uh, completely stressed out and overworked. Let's not examine that here. (laughs) We'll deliver the fucking food to your door and you'll pay, you'll pay more for it too. Yeah. It's not, it's not even like solving a problem. That's not a problem problem. It's just sort of redirection away from what the problem is (laughs) right it's just sort of being like uh why am i why am i tired all the time and want to kill myself hey here's a recipe for some black bean tacos (laughs) like uh no it weirdly really it makes me think about and this is only on my mind because i wrote a paper about it uh it's really this is the problem with the the novel the outsiders uh, by S.E. Hinton, where, I mean, it's a cool book, uh, and I read it, you know, when I was in high school or whatever, middle school maybe, and it's cool, and it's classic, whatever, but the whole sort of solution to, like, Pony Boy's problems is just, like, it's all inner, you know, it's like an inward thing. It's like stay gold, pony boy. It's like, hey, how about this fucking poverty, which is like the whole problem of the book? You know, like there's it, again, it's inner solutions to outer problems. There's no there's no like imagining of like how the social conditions can be remedied so that pony boy is not, you know, miserable or his, you know, and his, the people in his world are not miserable. It's just he needs to be stronger, like, in you know, psychologically. Um, yeah. And, and I think, you like, like we're saying, you see this principle, inner solutions to outer problems everywhere, uh, which is fucking depressing. Yeah. And uh, you know what? This is related to what we're talking about, but it would have been 
more relevant to bring it up last week when we were talking about Soylent Green, but the drink Soylent that we have in our world today and like Huel and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, mill replacement shakes, which, you know, have been around for a long time for like people dieting or people who, you know, can't eat solid food for whatever reason. Um, but these are designed with a specific sort of clientele in mind and it's people who are just too damn busy to eat food. And so you have to, you know, drink your shake and it's got all the shit you need in it. And then you can just go about your day. Yeah, it, it that to me is like one of the biggest absurdities in the world uh, right now because if if you can sort of step back and say, so work, human work, for well, I mean, used to be gathering, hunting and gathering for what for food, okay, and then it became agriculture, you know, and so the work everyone was doing was again primarily food based when when uh work becomes alienated from sustaining yourself and your family um you know, like like i said there's like the separation so then it's like oh i i have to do this you know arbitrary job that will get me money to get me food now it's even like more radically alienated where it's like I don't have time to eat so that so that I can work. But the whole reason I'm working is so that I can fucking eat. It's it's absurd. It's an absurd state that we are. And, in. And people just don't question it. Uh, it's like, oh, uh, I'm making money to, you know, pay for my kids to go to school and to feed myself and to keep a roof over my head. Um, but I'm failing to do those things. It's like, well, then what is the job for? <laughs> what, what, why are you working? Um, it, you know, it's way more complicated than that, but at, at its core, I think you could just come to that conclusion of like, if my material needs are not being met, then what am I doing? And it's, it's because, and I know how this is going to sound, but I don't give a shit. It's because we live on a fucking grid that is inescapable and it's it we don't live on we don't live in like i guess what maybe used to be called life where you're a an animal on a planet you are a number in a on a fucking computer screen and you cannot navigate the world you cannot survive unless you participate in in this constructed world uh, where you have to trade your time and labor <clears throat> for money and it just has very little to do with with uh, the bare facts of existence you know what I'm saying it's not like and we sort of talked about this I think with the Katsi trilogy like how much of your day is dependent upon things that didn't exist 20 years ago? Yes. Uh, you know, how much of your life would change uh, if, if your Wi-Fi went out? Uh, it's like life now is not, uh, it's like not biological. It's like you are just this sort of idea existing on a more foundational idea 
I guess you'd call it culture. Uh, anyway, it, it just has very little to do with the fact that you are a, an animal with uh, biological needs. Um, well, even on like and, a- and it's it's just completely theoretical, but but uh, oppressive in in serious ways. Yeah, and, and even on like a like a higher level up from just what you're talking about, we spend so much of our life, and so much of our life is predicated on the time we spend and our ability to navigate informational systems uh, in a lot of different ways and. A specific, I mean, there are a lot of examples of this you could think of, but one that I always think of is that I teach college composition classes. And a part of that is I have to spend time in class teaching my students how to use certain aspects of Microsoft Word. Which is like, it, it's, it, and it's taken for granted. It's like, yeah, well, duh, how else would they turn in assignments? But just think about that. I have to teach them how to use a piece of software in order to write their mm-hmm. thoughts down. Um, and on top of that, you have to learn how to use, you have to navigate like the university system, whatever it is, and the learning software that everybody has to use now because it's ubiquitous. And it's just, it's a lot of stuff that has nothing to do with my ability to teach them to construct a thesis statement, for instance, like has nothing to do with that. Right. It, it, it's, I mean, it's a little bit reductive, but it's fundamentally true that, I mean, a million people have said this, Noam Chomsky among many others, uh, you know, school is not where you go to learn unless you're talking about learning uh, how to obey authority. Uh, so school, in a very real way, is training for uh, employment, you know. You learn how to follow orders yeah. uh, from an authority, uh, which which reminds me of Biodome. Um, I'm just kidding. It does not. Oh, I was me. like, ooh man, <laughs> check out that transition. Ooh boy. Uh, no, but I mean, I don't know. With with Biodome, it's kind of interesting because you have um, Bud and Doyle, who are two guys that just like. It's not that they are rebelling against authority. They just do not give a shit and are like kind of too dumb and too like preoccupied, you know, getting stoned and, and uh, drinking soda, drinking their bladder busters to, to care about anything. Um, and I think that that's, again, I think it's like a useful, they're kind of useful fools. If you think about it in that way, uh, like I was saying, you have to, build a big boat for everyone to come on board as far as uh, climate change and environmental activism is concerned. Uh, so you need everyone, including those people who are outside of the system, not because of any sort of ideological reason, but just because they just do not own the capacity to give a shit. Right, right. Yeah, there has to be there there have to be things in place larger uh, than you know individual models for reform uh, because of people like that. Yeah, and I think it's kind of interesting 
um, to I guess to bring it back to the movie that they build the biodome at all. And do you remember like the weird commercial that they show for it? And we also I want to talk for a second for, about for the, the movie. Uh, no commercial for the biodome inside the movie. They they have like a little thing where it's like biodome might save the world. That kind of it's like explaining what what they're doing and how long they're going to oh, live in it and all oh, that shit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, one of my favorite things in uh, culture generally is critiques of television of the time. And so you see the guys like I want to see if the sniper shot the clown at the mall. <laughs> And there's like a slow motion clip of the the a mall clown getting shot by a sniper, and they're doing the back into the left thing from JFK. I fucking it is like one of my favorite things of Daria yeah. is you would see clips of Six Sad World, the show she would always watch. <laughs> and uh, the newscaster after the clown gets shot just sort of like somberly shakes his head, and he's like a clown. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it that's a really I don't know it's it's a good kind of encapsulation. Uh, of the culture at the time and our culture now, except it would have been like, oh, you know, 50 clowns were shot today. Right. Um, but anyway, yeah, you have that, that weird kind of commercial that's sort of introducing you to what the biodome is. And uh, they're like, oh, genius Dr. Faulkner designed it and they're going to live in it for a year. And uh, biodome, it might just save the planet. And it's, it's just like a weird sentiment of this one. It, it's kind of like our... Uh, sort of elon musk like the genius will the technocratic genius will save our lives kind of thing uh where he's building the biodome out in the desert and the thing is that would never save anything right because what you've done is create a perfectly homeostatic encapsulated system the earth is not that right unless you build the dome like over the whole earth you know, I don't, yeah. And you can't, I mean, obviously that scale is impossible, but they're also talking about like, you know, setting up colonies on other planets and shit. Yeah. Which that, that makes way more sense than yeah. this is going to help yeah. us here. And to be honest, like a smarter movie would play up that point and be like, we sold Biodome as a way to save earth, but really we're trying to get off of it like that, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, but that, that's, that's not this movie so and that's fine <laughs> everyone's working at different levels of ability i, I gotta tell one comparison uh i, I did want to make in that sort of final sequence where uh dr faulkner is trying to uh blow up the biodome it, it felt a lot uh i mean a lot like the end of first reform uh, <laughs> so dr faulkner is is taller, taller, <laughs> and he's got the bomb vest on, right? And he's gonna like, like the oh, the door, God. the doors opening, uh, you know, the sort of countdown to the doors opening is sort of the parallel to um, the rededication, the, the reconsecration, yeah. or whatever. Uh, and so we're wondering, you know, is Doctor Faulkner going to choose this sort of destruction, oblivion, self destruction, uh, or is he going to make out with Amanda Seyfried? Um, and he doesn't really do either one. He, you know, he digs through uh, a pile of shit for the key and uh, escapes. And then throws some coconut bombs. 
So, like I said, very similar to First Reform. Yeah. He kills the parrot and eats it and wears its feathers like a crown. <laughs> um, pretty cool scene. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Let, let, let's torture this metaphor a little bit. Um, so, you have Faulkner. What would be a parallel with Toller? I mean, the big difference is that Toller didn't have people trying to fix the problems. Um. But but also Faulkner kind of has this thing where like even if they fix Biodome and like get the oxygen levels back up, what does that really accomplish? Because now it's only going to be remembered as the place where Bud and Doyle threw the party and mm-hmm. like became famous and had action figures made of them and all that sort of stuff. So it's really not. If anything, he should have gone crazy not because they they uh, sort of despoiled the whole dome, but he should be upset because they really pulled the focus of the project away from what it was trying to do to hey look at these two jackasses yeah but but at the same time maybe bud and doyle are reaching a much broader audience environmentally (laughs) yeah which is kind of the 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 efficacy is is a funny thing to think about right because it's like Oh yeah, this you know well-known doctor, and everybody's like, "Oh, Biodome, yeah, that's cool," but they don't really care about it. And they're like, "Bud and Doyle, hell yeah!" <laughs> right. Uh, so it's almost like, like what we were saying about the movie itself, uh, you know, reaching a, a broader audience than say Mother, which kind of preaches to the choir. Whereas this movie, the audience is fucking fifteen-year-old dudes. Um, you're like environmentalism is rad. They do a kickflip, <laughs> right? But but one thing we haven't been saying is that any good, uh, you know, theoretical thing about this movie is completely undercut by the utter unwatchability of it. <laughs> yeah, uh, there there are two scenes where uh, Bud and Doyle are sniffing each other's farts for extended periods and identifying what the other person has eaten that day. <laughs> extended. One of them is played as a like a comforting memory. Like he's reminiscing <laughs> about it and so he can fall asleep. <laughs> oh, and the second it, it, what, what I will say that's clever about that is um, the comparison in the foods because in the first one it's like peanut butter and jelly sandwich, like pizza, all this all this bullshit. But then the second time is after they've turned over a new leaf huh? and <laughs> what he's identifying is like soy patty and like all that, that kind of shit that they're eating, the all the natural stuff inside the biodome. So that is kind of clever. Like if anything, it might be the most clever part of the film. <laughs> it's just... Uh, uh, funny to think that we watched on this podcast, we watched the movie Leave No Trace, and now we're talking about the farts in Biodome. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've watched like award winning cinema. Um, th- this is, I mean, it, this is by far, by far the worst thing we've watched. I can't even like yeah. think of a comparison. I'm trying to remember what we've done, and I'm. Let me see if there's. Uh, the day after tomorrow is pretty shitty, but it's not even close. 
the I think uh, the tone kind of sets it apart. Biodome, I mean, because you know, Day After Tomorrow is kind of earnest. Have we done any other comedies? I Heart Huckabees. I yeah, I Heart Huckabees. Uh, but that's, uh, I mean, that's a a funny comedy. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a comedy with uh, what I, I I don't know. It's kind of the comparison. I can't even think of like a good comparison because I Heart Huckabees has a message, but it's kind of a very nuanced kind of multi-pronged message and it's conveying it in a lot of different ways and it's acted very well and the dialogue is smart and you can think about that movie for more than two seconds. Biodome yeah. has one big point and it's environmentalism is good and they just like, you know, beat you over the head with it, which is the point of the film which it, it works that part i guess if anything well i was jency was sort of saying is you know what is there to say about this uh before you know after we watched it and i i said we haven't really done on this podcast we haven't done a lot of comedies and i think it is important to do to uh to understand to understand any culture i think you really have to examine what's funny uh, as Bo Burnham says, um, and and not so much you know to laugh, but to like like comedy is so dependent upon, uh, uh, as as Bo Burnham says again, shared experience, uh, and so you can really start to see some cultural assumptions based on what people assume enough to, to make it a foundation on which to build humor. Um, so in this movie in biodome, I don't think environmentalism is like the assumptions everyone's making. Um, what is, is this sort of slacker burnout kind of nihilistic, uh, you know, gen X kind of culture, uh, that, is the entry point that is where that is, that is what does not have to be qualified in order to be understood uh in 1996 everyone understands this yes um, who sees this movie what is trying to be qualified are these environmental claims um and so i think i think just asking those kinds of questions about comedies is important in, in understanding sort of where the culture is, what does the film assume its audience knows and what is it trying to make conscious in its audience? Um, and, and again, it's not just with comedies, maybe even less so with comedies because it seems like comedies are less likely to have a, you know, to be grinding an ax or, or trying to get a message across. Um, but this one certainly does. A another one uh, that I think we've talked about doing that would be worth looking at is Wanderlust, the Paul Rudd and yeah. Jennifer Aniston movie, because there's there's some weird stuff going on in that movie, and I think examining kind of the what I was just talking about the baseline assumptions um, about sort of counterculture that that the movie feels feels safe enough to like make jokes based on these uh, supposedly shared assumptions about the ridiculousness of counterculture in, in that particular case. Yeah. And we've also talked about 
and probably, I mean, we'll probably do both of that movie and the one I'm going to say in the future, but we also talked about, uh, without a paddle. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. And, uh, uh I think we once were kicking around the idea of Ace Ventura and the whole nineties yes. kind of animal, uh, fascination with yeah. uh, animal rights in the nineties, which I think is worth examining. Yeah, and we would probably, I would imagine we would specifically or look more at uh, Ace Ventura 2 when nature calls. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just because it has more of that kind of stuff going on in it. Um, right. Yeah. But uh, comedies that tackle any issue of this magnitude are difficult to come by. Um, they're usually just not dealing with things. Um, of that kind of depth and magnitude and that's by design and that's completely fine. Uh, right. And, and that's what's it. so special. I think about I heart Huckabees, um, is that it does do that and it is funny, but it's only, it's only funny to, to a certain number of people who are again, like our, our criticism of mother are kind of already in on the joke. And so it's not reaching anyone um, beyond the sort of in group who's who's going to get the joke. Yeah. Is just because you mentioned our our Huckabees, um, is is Marky Mark kind of the champion of the podcast at at this time? Has he appeared <laughs> in the most films? Um, There's well, at least may, maybe what, because because of Peter Berg, probably because yeah. we watched like four Peter Berg movies. So it's like three. Right, that we watched, yeah. the, and then I Heart Huckabee. So four at least, I think that might be all of them. I can't think of them if there being another one. I mean, Michael Shannon is kind of in there. The couple yeah. McConaughey's got a few. I'd sit down and think about this. That's troublesome. If so, big if true. Vigo Mortensen. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not that troubling because I mean, most of the ones that we're looking at with him, I mean, the three. Peter Berg movies are just we're examining them completely critically. Yes. I just don't want him to <laughs> be the most most seen actor. Uh anyway, not not super important. I was kind of wondering if that was the case. Um I'm trying to think of what else came up in this movie that I, I think maybe I've mentioned things I wanted to talk about. I don't think there's because this movie is an hour and a half long, and like you said, it could probably be like an hour long, easily, um, and and do all the same kind of stuff. You just lose a, f- a few fart jokes here and there. It it does do something that I thought was kind of funny, and that's it sets itself up for a sequel, where they drive into the power plant at the end, mm-hmm. and that was something that was very kind of like '90s, early 2000s, where for some reason people were terrified to just let a movie end. And to let a story come to a close, they always had to leave it open for the next one. So you know, yeah. maybe you can make a sequel to it. Yeah, that's I, I never really thought about that, but uh, yeah, a completely commercial decision. Yeah, because I think a lot of the movies that we've seen and a lot of the movies that we appreciate, I would say, um, actually craft an ending. They don't just 
do this like cheat move of oh what if this happened next um yeah they're all very like even movies that do that it still feels final so i'm thinking of like interstellar like even though he's on his way to find her that feels very final when you get there maybe uh, maybe that's just me but i feel like it does well no i i think i think it really says a lot about a person's sort of general orientation to movies uh it seems like there's a whole group of people who no matter how the movie ends it, they just want to know what happens next um and i i don't really understand that's such a literal kind of misunderstanding of uh, of what a movie is like uh, you hear people who are who don't like the end of the fucking Shawshank Redemption because they like want to know like what happens with <laughs> you Andy see them and hanging Red. out on the and beach. It's like, that's a beautiful, perfect ending. They're free. It's the same way with Castaway. That's maybe even worse. People are pissed about Castaway, where he's like standing at the crossroads and he's like looks looks a few different directions. They're like, which way does he go? Or like he was just on a fucking island for 20 years or whatever it was. The point is that he has a he has a choice. He has freedom to make a choice. That is what we're supposed to be thinking about. Uh, yeah, like it, you've seen the important stuff. There's no more important stuff. You got the important stuff. <laughs> right. Right. Like uh, it's just and I think I think Corey and I talked about this on the on the other podcast at one point where <clears throat> like that sort of literalism in people's minds is like what leads to sequel culture and remakes and, and all that stuff. Um, and people don't want to sit back and reflect on the fact that this is a constructed story that it's ending is meant for you to reflect on why it ends that way. Uh, or to, to feel the emotions that it, um, that it instills not for you to just wonder so crassly like what happens next that's just a fundamental misunderstanding of like what a movie is yes you you just like immediately discount the last two hours of your life as <laughs> as precursor to something greater that that's never going to happen yeah. hopefully and, yeah. and it's that old thing like people used to do walking out of a movie theater be like well now they got to make the sequel about this thing it's like no they don't <laughs> they can just end it there yeah. it's like well how do we know what happens we don't know that's the magic of cinema sorry <laughs> yeah I, I think we talked about too uh or maybe it was Corey and i uh when i showed the truman show in my class <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the dude was just like this kid in the front row you know sees this powerful scene of of uh what's his name jim carrey uh truman you know, bowing to his, to his God and, and walking away from him with full knowledge of the danger and craziness he's walking into, uh, rejecting safety. And the movie ends and this dude just goes sucked. It's like, still like he, the he wanted to know what happened, but it's like, fuck you. Oh, that's so great. Uh, but uh, I don't know. That doesn't really have anything to do with 
the scope of the podcast. I just wanted to mention it. Um, because I think, I don't know, the, the, to have a, the proper kind of sense of an ending, to use Frank Kermode's old phrase, is, is incredibly important. And I think if it, for a film to be, I don't know, this is going to sound like it is very underdeveloped thought, but for a film to be taken, taken seriously as kind of a, a important piece of media, if you can even, you know, do that with any piece of media, I think you have to have the sense of a sort of well-crafted and complete ending. Um, unless it's like, you know, adapting a three part series of books or something. Right. And that doesn't necessarily mean uh, when you say a well-crafted ending, that doesn't necessarily mean an unambiguous conclusion. It yeah. just means this is the point at which you are supposed to stop uh, following this story. And and it stops here for reasons that you should consider. I think that's what you mean when you say a well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ending. Yeah. yeah. Like it, 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 I'm not saying it has to be like final, right? Yeah. Put a bow on it. Yeah. Like all the characters die or whatever, but it, you should have the sense that like this was the perfect moment or this was an important moment for this story, for me to step out of this story. Yeah. And, uh, sincerely here uh, here's a sincere reference to first reformed that is a to me a perfect example of a of a great ending where at least for me the thing that happens at the end is like something i wanted to happen but i didn't know really that i wanted it to happen until it did um and and of course the metaphors that have been constructed all along are kind of perfectly um, not I want to say tied together but within the metaphors that are constructed um, something important very important happens with that um, that final embrace at the end of first reformed yeah uh, which has nothing to do with biodome no uh, but no. they do get back I, with their girlfriends there is that. that that is nice that's good for them I was worried about that <laughs> um, I, I, it's weird that they, that Polly Shore even has like a character name because he's just clearly Polly Shore. The weasel. Yeah. Poor man's Adam Sandler. Yes. Very homeless man's Adam Sandler, who is himself. Did we say, not, did we say la maybe we said it last week. I can't remember. We said, I was talking with somebody. Maybe it was you on the podcast. I said, he's a poor man's Adam Sandler. And did you say, no, he's just a poor man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't remember. Maybe, uh, maybe it's somebody else. I can't um, remember. That's a good line. I hope I said that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just, you know, performances are, are borderline unbearable, unwatchable. The, the humor is, you know, it's a mis it's a misnomer. It, it, the humor is like an unfunny 14 year old boy. Like, like can't even land a good joke out of, you know, one out of 10. Right. Yeah. Um, surprisingly like, I don't know that I was really surprised that i noticed more than like two names out of the cast. So that was kind of interesting. Um, yeah. 
And like, it, like I said, the, the environmental positions, I don't think are, are terrible. Like we said, there's some decent, oh yeah, uh, decent points about environmentalism within the, you know, the, the scope of the narrative. But again, it's undercut by the unwatchable performances, it, uh, and the, and the juvenile fucking, uh, anti humor or whatever you want to call it. In, so, so we, we talk a lot about a, a movie having the right bad guys. The bad guys in this movie are the protagonists. <laughs> uh, which is, if you think about it, sort of some next level shit of like, they, they are what is causing the trouble. And, uh, well, who comes to the rescue? It's also them. Yeah, it's Oops. they're not even anti-heroes. They're just like the antagonists. Yeah, like, I don't know, the movie's much more interesting if they remove the whole doctor going crazy and making coconut bombs thing and just have him, like, stick around and rebuild or just leave. Uh, the movie's more compelling that way, I guess. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's just interesting that the, the bad guys are the kind of everyman shithead characters that we have um, and that have to then confront and stop themselves. I think which it's a valuable is, which point. Which is not, yeah, which is not a bad bad point at all. Yeah, so, uh, good movie, apparently. <laughs> Two thumbs up. <laughs> we we landed on Biodome pretty good. Uh, <laughs> it, it doesn't include that uh, attempted rape scene that we mentioned. Oh, my God. that I mean, that but, right there is, uh, the movie is beyond redemption. Yes. So, uh, I was just, I was just aghast. When I saw that, I was just like, holy shit. This is in a Hollywood, like a big release. Like people were going out on Friday night to go see this movie. Um, yeah. Slapping their knees at that scene. Yeah. Just crazy. Uh, so yeah, when some, when you hear someone complaining about how comedy's not what it used to be, uh, <laughs> that's, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if I ha- really have anything else to say about it. Uh, I don't. If I'm being honest, <laughs> <laughs> I do. Like if that facility that they shot it in is still around, I would like to go there and like look at it. I don't know if they built it for the film or if it was like a pre-existing thing. Well, uh, I saw. I, I'm assuming that the idea for this movie came from uh, there was a real biodome in uh, Montreal, I believe in the mm-hmm. late 70s. Um, and so it was a real idea. Um, but well, Holly Shore wasn't at that one. Yeah, well, According to Wikipedia, there is a thing called Biosphere 2 located in Oracle, Arizona that is owned by the University of Arizona or has been since 2011. And it's just a, it's the largest closed system ever created so apparently they, they use it for similar kinds of purposes, but it's not, you know, they're not locked in there for a year or anything like that. They got the idea from this movie. <laughs> no, this was built beforehand. This was built, uh-huh. uh, it says between 1987 and 1991. So if anything, this might've influenced the movie. Yeah. sounds like it. If it's in Arizona. Yeah. Um, so I would like to go and visit that at some point. I think that would be kind of cool. That'd be cool if that. Let, wait, hold on. Let me poke around and see if this is where they shot it. Um, I don't think so. 
Does the Wikipedia for Biodome tell me? This show, now the show is just me reading Wikipedia <laughs> to myself. Now, I, I really wish like they would say where they made this. Anyway, not important. Um, so I guess that'll wrap up Biodome. <laughs> yeah. What, um, uh, are, are, what are, what's our plan next week? Okay. So next week we have a, a plan in the works. That is something we've never done before, and we're not sure it's going to work, but we're going to try. And if it doesn't work, we'll just change it, because who cares? Um, But next week, we're going to try to do a film that is currently in theaters. And the film we're going to try to do is uh, Ad Astra, (laughs) is uh, interesting, Uh, but is Ad Astra, the new uh, Brad Pitt, Tommy Lee Jones, film uh, directed by a guy whose name escapes me at the moment james gray james gray yes um so what we're going to try to do is watch this film and talk about it on the podcast and the tricky part about this that we were talking about is we're not sure how closely the themes of the film will line up with things that we're interested in examining on the show uh it can't be worse than biodome yeah yeah uh and it can't have it can't be more difficult to talk about than mud. Right. So, uh, if anything, it seems like it's going to compare pretty favorably with Interstellar and the whole sort of genre of uh, the Leaving Earth film. I, I hope it's a corrective to Interstellar. I, you know, one that, that maybe we should watch in tandem with it, if we have a chance, is... Uh, io on a netflix film called io Mm -hmm. with uh, anthony mackie uh which is doing some pretty interesting stuff in terms of the whole leaving earth because of climate change yeah kind of meme yeah so we so we might uh we might do that we might just end up talking about uh io (laughs) if that's if if push comes to shove we didn't really talk about that but yeah that's a we can do that if Ad Astra doesn't pan out. Yeah, but I think at the very least we'll get something out of Ad Astra. I mean, any film like this that's kind of speculative in nature and is looking at a future Earth is going to have something. Sure, sure. Uh, at the very least. So, yeah, that's our, our plan for next week. Hopefully it uh, comes to fruition and goes off without a hitch. Um, you can follow us at Twitter at Anthropod Tweets or available on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, um, uh, Carrier Pigeon, Pornhub Premium, um, (laughs) AshleyMadison.com. Yeah. Till next time. Yeah. Poison Ivy's real. (laughs) Watch the cock and balls out there because that would suck. (laughs) 